back to her tell i have been talking to yalel osowski and it occurred to me we probably ought to hit the record button that's how it goes when very old friends jump on the program early adapter can i use that that's a big tech term tech bros love that early adapter term you sir were an early adapter to the things i do and i appreciate you good to see you again oh good great to see you andrew and also uh, congrats on the uh the switch over to Substack. you know i've, yeah. I've seen you you've made that transition that's looking really nice getting your uh, your words out there and and hopefully multiplying yeah, we we I've been very Twitter centric, and Twitter is very let's just be kind and call it unstable at the moment. A little un, what's the old Magic Eight Ball? Cloudy future, uncertain future. Um, wanted to have kind of a one stop shop because I do a lot of different stuff with the columns and stuff. So I appreciate that. He is, of course, with the Consumer Choice Center, our very good friends, going all the way back to the radio days. Um, you got a piece up in USA Today. <laughs> Our old friends at the FTC, buddy, they just keep at it, don't they? Um, we talked about a week or so ago on the program about them going after big gaming as part of their big tech initiatives. Now you're in USA Today. Let's start this way because I don't know if you get wisdom with age, but you have seen things before. This stuff with Amazon cracks me up because if I go back to the 90s, it's the exact same arguments we had over Walmart, almost to the T. And if you go back further, you'll find it. The arguments never change, just the main character changes. Whoever the biggest consumer on the block is when it comes to, in this case, consumer goods, they get all the attention for regulation antitrust. I've seen this movie before, my friend. This is just a new spin on it with some high-tech nomenclature, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in my day, uh, when I was getting onto the internet, you know, figuring stuff out, 95, 96, um, you know, a little bit after the big talk of the town was Microsoft. And I, I know you talked about that with Steven, so you were able to go through uh, the FTC hurdles with that. But it's much the same. Microsoft is at the and at the time was a very new company. Like, look, there just were not many software companies that were also making hardware. And their model was, yes, to create some hardware, but they mostly had software, their operating system for the computer. And they would sell that and it would be adaptable to a bunch of computers. And you had different computer manufacturers from the U.S. or from Germany or Japan that could actually put up a machine and use that software. And it became ubiquitous. And because something is ubiquitous for some, that just means, hey, it's great. It's a platform. I understand it. I'm at school. I use Microsoft. I use Windows. I go here. I use Windows. I'm able to learn. You have governmental departments that use Windows. Uh, but for... You know, back in those days, you had the FTC that was like, well, this is a monopoly, obviously. It's like, of, of what? This is like a brand new industry that came out of nowhere that is novel and that is creating an entirely new category of value to consumers. So back then, it was Windows, Microsoft. Um, obviously, they were broken up, as it were. They technically did, never had to go through with it. Um, they just had to pay massive fines to the government. But what we've seen today is that we have a new bad guy in town, uh, which is very strange to say because that bad guy happens to be the second most popular brand in the entire country, and that's Amazon, uh, behind the U.S. military, by the way. So you have a connection there. 
but to see that this is now our Emmanuel Goldstein two minute hate and and not again not rooting for the American populace. Um, if this was a, a pure direct democracy, you know, we would not have these actions on Amazon that are being floated by the Federal Trade Commission. Uh, what we do have is a is a very small uh, literati, as it were, that have power because Joe Biden um, basically empowered every progressive organization in the world when he was nominating people for agencies when he came in. Uh, so we have Lena Khan, who's there, Yale Law School graduate, my age, actually. And uh, she has always had a big hate for Amazon, big hate for Meta, big hate for any of the big companies. She has essentially written a playbook for suing them. And she's already trying to do this. We saw one lawsuit that already hit this summer about Prime and how hard it is, Andrew, how hard it is to unsubscribe, uh, which is obviously ridiculous for anyone who's done this. Uh, but that that was sort of the, the opening salvo. And uh, what I mentioned in the piece is just that we're seeing the larger case that's being openly discussed now, which just has to do with Prime as a brand and the fact that Amazon has all of these different companies, whether it be web services, Prime Video, shipping, logistics, uh, even Whole Foods, you know, that's been mentioned as well. So uh, there's there's plenty of uh, of action there that the FTC would like to take. What's stopping them right now? Uh, yeah, the legal justice system, the Constitution, and the fact that American consumers love Amazon. <laughs> yeah, and they love Amazon. We need to back up for just a second, though, and I yeah, don't yeah. want to go. I don't want to go loggy transportation or too much. Why people love Amazon? I mentioned Walmart earlier. Walmart beat Sam Walton, a real genius in business. Real, real, you know, if you read through the annuals of American business, Sam Walton's up there with whoever you want to put up there, Vanderbilt's, you know, Carnegie, whoever. He figured it out. We're going to build a logistics network to get these good. We're going to make money in the margins was his thing. And they did it with their logistics and they did it with their scanning systems and all that. What Amazon did was they almost reverse engineered and did it the other way. We're going to do all this without any overhead. We're going to use the internet. We're going to get it to you the next day. And then slowly over the last 10 years, they've started putting, you mentioned the Amazon vans. That's all new in the last 10 years. They put their network of logistics in after they got their worldwide branding and especially their domestic stuff. That's how you get that package next day in a lot of places. Some days, some cities now, you get it same day if you get it in by seven. That's why people like Amazon. I get it. I click it. I get it quick. I get it at a good price. That's why they like it. Not to go on brand for consumer choice, but that's consumer choice to a T. They found a niche in the market. They killed it. They do it better than anybody else. And they've made a lot of money at it. And the government kind of got left behind on, well, wait a minute. We can't regulate this because it's never been done this way before. And that's where this starts becoming, I don't want to say predatory, but regulatory practices get predatory. They go after the biggest person on the block, and that's Amazon. Not that Amazon doesn't need regulated, not that they don't need to be kept appraised of their labor practices and all that. There's a function of government there. But what the folks at the FTC are doing, that's not what they're doing. They're just picking the biggest name on the block that's got the new hot thing and going after them. Am I misreading this? Because that's pretty much where I'm at on it. No, I, I think you're right. And I did mention in the piece, I mean, there are real reasons to have regulatory scorn against a company like Amazon. I, the two examples that I mentioned are uh, the ring uh, surveillance uh, thing that you put outside your door. Uh, essentially, this subsidiary of Amazon has basically had an open door to any law enforcement agency. And they've been incredibly lax with following through on asking for court orders 
Uh, that is pretty concerning. Uh, second one is we have a lot of fake you know, reviews and there's bot accounts and stuff doing China. I mean, that's super easy to fix with algorithms and things. They just haven't really done that. That can deceive people. You know, that is something that NFTC should absolutely look at. But when it comes to everything else, I mean, come on. I remember I was an early Amazon customer, you know, really when it was just books and, you know, you would compare prices. And I remember going to Books a Million and Concord Mills and, you know, looking at what the price was there versus on Amazon. And most of the time it was cheaper in the store. And then there was an apex. There was a moment. I don't know exactly the year it was. Maybe it was 2010, 11. Amazon just started winning and winning and winning. And it started expanding and attracting third-party sellers out the wazoo, which is the important part. Because, you know, the thing about Amazon is, yes, it's a marketplace and they have their own products, but anybody can technically sell on Amazon. You just got to pass the test, be sure you have all your scruples, your paperwork, blah, blah, blah. You can set up your vendor shop there on Amazon. That is like an amazing platform. Now, FTC comes in and say, well, whoa, whoa, the way that you're treating the the people who you've allowed onto your platform uh, needs to be done in X and Y way. <laughs> you invented this system uh, fairly new for a global e-commerce site, uh, but these are the new rules and standards that we're applying to you. you know, that just doesn't pass muster. Uh, there's, again, all kinds of small things that they're bringing up in the context of these lawsuits, and there have been mostly leaks. This tells you something about the FTC. We actually have the only lawsuit that's come out right now is the one against the Prime subscription. Uh, oh, oh, bad, so hard to unsubscribe. Everything else is just rumors in media. And it's been Lena Khan's team and the FTC leaking to reporters saying, we're going after them for this, this, and this. We're going to slam them for this and, and another thing. And it's, it's kind of served as this trickle of news my opinion is it's to get the American people ready for when this hits. And maybe they've heard the worst example of one thing. Uh, I just still don't think it's going to work because everybody knows somebody who's either worked at the Amazon warehouse or they see a van daily or they've ordered something from there or sold something there. It's so integrated into our economy that, you know, nobody is sitting there with a huge grudge against Amazon except people who have an ideological disposition to not like larger companies that happen to be online. And that's unfortunate. Yeah, yeah, well, Sasuke joining us. We've talked about this before, but I think it bears bringing it up again. You you brought up that great Orrin Hatch quote about hipster antitrust. The terms antitrust and his first cousin monopoly are getting absolutely abused when it comes to big tech companies like Amazon and things like this because that's – but here's the problem. People still think of those terms in the old-fashioned industrial policy and regulation ways, and they don't fit cleanly – we talked about this with the Microsoft stuff with Stefan. You know, you're talking about market shares that are way, way lower, even as big as an Amazon is, even as big as a Microsoft is. It's nothing like when they were going after the real antitrust breakers in the 30s and 40s. There is a real problem with the U.S. government, and some of it's statutory in the law, and it's not all their fault. But things like the FTC, they're using 
the old-fashioned terminologies for the industrial age for this new media age and it just doesn't fit and so much of what they're doing and you can talk about Khan and her you know chairman Khan and and her theories and her ideologies you just hear that 1930s ideology just pouring out of her like she's talking about the robber barons and there's not that there's not robber barons in big tech but when you go to make industrial policy for big tech it doesn't fit at all so even if you agree disagree whatever it's going to be a mess because it doesn't really apply and yet we're trying to use these terms again yeah i'm not a jeff bezos stan but just think of his story this guy you know grew up a stepfather from cuba a teenage mom you know just not super well rich guy he's not a vanderbilt and built this company up over years and years but the history of antitrust by the way is any kind of benefits that were offered at very cheap prices or free to certain industries or titans. So this happened with the settling of the American West. You had this land that was just claimed for pennies given to certain people, and they were able to build and use those resources, and they got a benefit from uh, the government. <laughs> and they've been given that, that huge start that allowed them to maintain a monopoly position in so that nobody could mount an opposition. Nobody could form a different company to have oil. Uh, we can look at tobacco. American tobacco is the same thing. Standard oil. Um, AT&T. You know, AT&T is one of the, the largest monopolies that was broken up, and it was much the same. They were given a license by the government to have basically control of our telecommunications lines. Now, those are all privileges that are granted by government and therefore warp the market over time. And there are consequences for consumers because they have to pay higher costs because there is no competition. We look today, a company like Amazon or even Facebook, Meta, whatever. I mean, this is not like a government license. <laughs> people claim that because we have Section 230, which allows people to essentially not be held liable for comments on their sites or websites, uh, that is somehow a government benefit, I think is an outright lie. And these are companies that have been built up from nothing and they've only provided value. And you can't, you just can't compare that to, you know, the old uh, trust of the day, whether it was in railroads, oil or tobacco, where you had government monopolies, government enforced monopolies. We, we learn about that in economics a lot. You know, it exists in some areas. You could say it exists today in, you know, weapons manufacturing. We don't, not, not to get on that topic, which I know you, you know a lot about, but these are areas that are propped up by government. Because what does government represent versus Amazon? Who can put me in a jail cell and who can get me batteries to my door in three hours? You know, that is, I think, the difference. It's why I don't buy the larger narrative of uh, surveillance capitalism, which we can talk about probably another time. Uh, but it just goes to show why the FTC's cases are just not helping anybody. And the entire idea of consumer welfare, which is supposed to be what modern antitrust is, has just been thrown out. Yeah, yeah, Lasowski joining us. There's another part to this down the road that coming that worries me. When you have something like the FTC not being used, and again, you know, we can yell small government and all that. There's a there's a proper function for the FTC that is important. It should be doing some oversight on businesses. It has a role to play. But for the current administration, their record in court was really, really good. They were getting about, I think about a 70%, something like that, success rate on their lawsuits. They usually knew what they were doing. When you have a, a government organization like the FTC that has a good role and it's not being done properly and it's being 
frankly, in my opinion, being abused. You, well, you referred to, they call it jawboning. It's the government putting pressure on wink, wink, nudge, nudge to make people do stuff, right? The problem is those things, once the agencies stop doing their functions and you have, and in this case, we're on Amazon, Amazon's side, Amazon's going to pay a lot of money in lobbyists. We know the hundreds of millions of dollars Facebook is pummeling into Congress for lobbying and trying to, they're going to want to start writing the rules for these regulations in the future to protect themselves. And you want to talk about consumer choice when the big tech and the big governments start getting together and the industries and they start making all the rules. That's when the consumers really get screwed. That's why you got to hold these things accountable. Even if it's going against something you may or may not like, you got to rein this stuff in now because that's what's coming down the road. And we've seen it in history and we see it now with the way these um, big tech hearings are going. Yeah, I, I very much agree. And we see it happening in front of our eyes with artificial intelligence. So there are a couple of frameworks that are out there. Chuck Schumer has written one. There's one in the European Union. The UK has a plan. And they've called in Sam Altman, who's the CEO of OpenAI, and essentially given him carte blanche to introduce any kind of rules he'd like to see. And what do you think he's going to do? Well, he's going to try to cut out Google BART or BARF or whatever it's called or any other AI company out there. And we cannot allow uh, this the industry to just write the rules at the outset. You know, I think there has to be, uh, when normally we say entrepreneurial discovery, we need to have regulatory discovery too. If we don't know what the rules should be just yet, uh, there's a lot of saying of there ought to be a law, but we can't know what exactly that should be. We all have in mind various guardrails, uh, whether it comes to, you know, representation, stealing, copyright, you know, there's a lot of things that we know there. I think the biggest problem with AI is going to come down to labor and particularly if we look at autonomous vehicles and we look at labor unions. Uh, we're already seeing this in San Francisco to a good, uh, good extent. Uh, but it is true that we need to have regulatory agencies in the competition realm that do keep a track on stuff because a lot of stuff is actually cartels. You know, if you look at the sugar industry, for instance, uh, there's the U.S. sugar program, you know, this kind of cronious thing that continues to funnel profits to, um, you know, the big sugar producers. And then we, we've got, you know, all of these different realms where people have secret deals that artificially keep prices high. Oftentimes, this is done at the behest of some legislative concern and some law that passed, but also sometimes it is private, off-the-books things. We will only buy from you here. We promise not to sell this below this price. That is obviously, blindfully, this is, we can say, this is an antitrust violation. And we've seen it, I believe there have been recent cases on um, contact lens companies that kind of do this, um, where they have exclusive deals with doctors. I mean, there are ways that this is happening right now that aren't being addressed. And I think that's very concerning. Uh, also, one thing, I'm very open in saying this, there's a lot of the crypto industry. Uh, most of the crypto industry is scams and deceptions that happen all day. And we all see the the spam crypto tweets and we see all of the things and we know it's obviously there's so many Ponzi's out there. This would be, you know, page one of FTC 20 years ago. Today, it just goes by the wayside. You know, you get something from uh, maybe the, the SEC, you know, if they can put uh, Kim Kardashian's name on it because it gets them some mentions. But there's a lot of people losing a lot of money here who are being deceived, lied to. And there's no action that's coming from FTC. It's all coming from the financial regulators after the fact, once people have already lost their money. 
So I think that should occupy a good amount of time for the antitrust because that is stapping a lot of money from Americans right now. And, you know, I there are obviously other examples and things that are happening. We also have to ensure that our government remains very open to innovation, particularly in the face of what we see from communist China. You know, we would talk about Amazon, blah, blah, blah. We have Alibaba, which could eat Amazon's lunch tomorrow if it was allowed to grow in the U.S. more. They already do in places like Canada and Western Europe. Alibaba is growing. It's huge. And because they have incredibly cheap shipping costs from their containers and all these deals, you know, from China, they could actually become more popular, bigger than Amazon. Uh, right now, Amazon just happens to have good consumer loyalty, customer loyalty, prime. They've got all of these other benefits that Alibaba can't offer yet. If they get cut down, we could see a world where even more tech would be owned, would be distributed by the Chinese Communist Party and its affiliates. I think that is much more concerning than, you know, having a prime van going by my house every couple of days. Yeah, I agree. Yalel Osowski joining us. You mentioned crypto. You mentioned Alibaba, something I've actually kind of been keeping one eye on for the last year or two, especially, what was it, two years ago, their chairman got in a little bit of hot water with the Chinese government and fast talked his way out of it. I'm like, up, oh, there's a check wrote there for down the road somewhere we're going to have to keep an eye on. What else in the headlines for our listeners are you keeping your eye out on, whether it's, you know, a congressional hearing thing, a revolutionary technology thing? What are you watching in the headlines for folks that they can watch so when it pops up virally, they'll know, oh, that's something I need to pay attention to? Uh, well, so here's one I know that you haven't talked about on your show, uh, as far as I know. Um, there's a lot of stuff that's happening in Canada on basically traditional news media versus new media and tech firms. So in Canada, it was called the Online News Act. In the U.S., we have our version, the JCPA, Journalism Competition and Preservation Act. This is essentially the idea, which first came from, uh, I can say commie Australia, because the, the, their, their policies lately are pretty bad. Uh, but essentially, the idea from Australia was we force tech firms to sit down with news publishers, news broadcasters, and pay them money for all of the classifieds and advertising money that has shifted from traditional newspapers to tech firms, Google, Facebook, you name it. So in Canada, we're seeing the absolute disaster that this has caused. They passed the bill, went into royal assent, and Meta, predictably, as they stated they would do, cut off Canadian news websites so that they are not subject to this law. Now, there's been outcry and a lot of misinformation about why this happened. It was because the government passed the law forcing them to pay old school print journos. And I, there's a lot to unpack there. But if we look at the Australian example, it has not been a success at all. And the biggest beneficiaries have actually been Rupert Murdoch and a couple of his companies because he owns uh, still a lot of the broadcast and some of the, the print media down there. So what we're using is government power to try to force a new industry to pay an old industry. And journalism is going undergoing a renaissance right now. I mean, you use Substack, YouTube, podcasting, open platforms. 
you also are in newspapers. You're also in other media. You know, you do what we all have to do uh, to get our message out there. But we have all these tools and tech available. You know, we're not reliant on the same newspaper model of the 1970s. It is new, but media companies have to innovate. The New York Times has done amazingly in pivoting to a digital world. They're making more money than they ever have. Other newspapers and firms, not so much. And I think, unfortunately, a lot of people will continue to call on the government to fix the problem. So if uh, if we're able to put a little bit of a spotlight on what's happening in the U.S., again, it's the JCPA bill by um, Senator Klobuchar, who's, um, again, also an antitrust uh, fangirl. Uh, that is at least something to highlight because I think media like yours uh, go against their narrative because you're you're actually being able to put things out there. And, and hopefully we'll get you a lot more uh, Substack subscribers so you can do it full time all the time. Yeah, that'd be nice. But, you know, th it's a great example because I write I started writing for my local print media. They're online, too, of course, my local print media, because the media environment, you know, the the flagship newspaper. In fact, they just cut down no more Sunday papers, which was an institution for years. They're just going to have a weekend edition, stuff like that. The media landscape there is changing and I wanted to be a part of it. So I do do local, you know, a local column as well. Uh, California had a bill about this. We covered uh, about a week or so ago, a smaller way. That's a lot of what um, Klobuchar and them pulled from yeah. uh, California. Now that stalled out, but we did cover it. Uh, in fact, I think we called it how not to save newspapers because it's actually really bad for newspapers, too, when you get down to it, because we know what happens when you subsidize something. You can't really cover it. Right. Um, I completely agree with you. We will get on this Canada thing. We'll have to get one of our Canadian friends down for that. My thing with the media, though, just put a bow on this. Here's how we tie it all together. Watch this little media thing here. Jeff Bezos owns the Washington Post, and it's done pretty well under Jeff Bezos's thing, who also owns Amazon. And people will say, well, there's yet another, like, well, no, that's one of the models of media now. You have to have a rich benefactor that'll take care of a flagship institution, or you got to go the nonprofit route like we've seen out in Utah and other places. By the or way, you just have to be a New York Times and survive off your legacy, basically. I mean, that was the storyline of Citizen Kane, you know, yes. the best movies of all time from over 100 years ago. Yes. Was, you know, rich benefactors. Like, how many how many millions of dollars are going to lose next year? I expect to lose 20 million that year and that yeah. year. You know what? I'll run out of money in a hundred years. Yeah, you want to go back to yellow journalism and you know invading Cuba? How far back you want to go? This stuff is not new, is the moral of the story, folks. That's why we got to turn the noise down on the news and talk to folks like our good friend Yale Losowski, Consumer Choice Center. Great having you back. We're going to keep having you in the rotation along with all of your many cohorts and the folks of your ilk which people mean for bad, but I love it. I love calling people that. Let folks know how you can follow and keep up with you. We're going to link to your piece in the USA today. Let them know what else you got going on until we get you back on her. Tell my friend. Yeah, well, uh, to my fellow travelers, uh, I'm on the Twitter, uh, Y-A-E-L-O-S-S. -S. Um, I could talk to you about Nostr, a whole like Bitcoin-powered social network, but we'll do that another time. Uh, but mostly find me there or over there at Consumer Choice Center, and I'm uh, pretty Googleable at this point. Unique name, uh, strange uh, national origin. Uh, I'm there international man of mystery yeah you said we'll get somebody canadian to talk about i am canadian i know about this stuff too well, yeah <laughs> you're you're a man of the you're a citizen of the world my friend you you, you are the uh consumer choice onion one astounding layer after another my friend so i have not yet been called an onion my wife will like that well thank you so much <laughs> for having me on intro it's been a pleasure and uh yeah heard tell let's do this Look, appreciate your support my friend we'll talk soon sir all righty
Uh, welcome back to Hertel. Okay, another friend of ours we hadn't seen in a little while, Neetu Arnold. She's back. She is a fellow at the National Association of Scholars. She has a long list, Wall Street Journal, News. You got Wall Street? Everybody's got Wall Street Journal before me. It <laughs> makes me mad. All my friends are doing it. Uh, You'll get Neetu, it one day. Uh, maybe. We'll see. Neetu Arnold's back with us. How are you? I'm very busy right now, just my personal life. I'm going on vacation soon, and I'm also moving to a new apartment. So I'm packing, but I'm pretty much packing up the whole apartment. So on that end, it's been very busy. But other than that, you know, life is going well. I'm I'm continuing to write and improve, and I think that's all you can ask for. Well, you can ask for somebody to publish it, but that's a secondary <laughs> step. We'll work on that. Uh, you've been writing about the student loan debt issue. Uh, you have a piece out, American Conservative. We're going to link to the whole piece, but let, let's start here with something about this. And you brought it up in your piece, too. One of the problems here is we have something like the Supreme Court decision. And then since that, the Biden administration has gone and gone this other route to try to do this a different way. We have a lot of push-pull here. But the push-pull is actually part of the problem because we have a Supreme Court case and everybody goes, oh, Supreme Court ruled this way. That's how it is. No, that's just everybody's going to adjust now. Or people go, well, we can or cannot forgive student loan debt. We keep arguing the minutiae parts of this and the latest thing of it. And we're not really dealing with the overall problem, which is the cost of college, the pipeline system of putting people who may not need to or want to or have any business being in college, going to college anyway, for the financial part. There's the financial institutions. There's the government part of it. There's the big education part of it. And then there's a whole bunch of people that are just stuck in this wheels of this system. This is a bigger problem than just the headlines, but all we're doing is chasing the headlines, aren't we? You're exactly right. And that was something that bothered me, actually, after the Supreme Court ruled that the Biden administration couldn't just forgive student loan debt the way that he approached it. On one hand, we were all a lot of us were happy about it because the way this was pushed was unconstitutional. But on the other hand, I was thinking the fact that a nearly half a trillion dollar program hinged on very fragile lawsuits uh, should be concerning to voters. There were many signs that the Democrats were going to go to these extremes to push through student debt forgiveness. Uh, just throughout the 2010s, we had Bernie Sanders talk about uh, tuition-free college. Uh, Hillary Clinton and Elizabeth Warren talked about debt forgiveness when it came to uh, some of the for-profit college scandals. And then towards the end of the 2010s, we start to see calls for overall debt forgiveness. So there were many signs that we were going to go in this direction. In the meantime, there were opportunities where Republicans had uh, power both in Congress and even uh, as president. And we never really had a cohesive higher education plan. It seems like we're always just reacting to whatever the Democrats propose. And I, I think we need to give Americans a grand vision of what we offer, regardless of whatever the Democrats propose, whether that's super extreme or not, we should have a vision that is separate from that. And that was the purpose of my piece. Um, again, with the student loan forgiveness, it, you, we shouldn't have to rely on some Supreme Court ruling when this was already a problem. Yeah, and me too, Arnold joining us. You touched on it in your piece. 
as much as I don't like the way the Biden administration went about this, I don't actually blame them for this problem. Uh, the Supreme Court, I don't really blame them for this problem. A lot of this problem, as far as the government end of this, starts in Congress. Congress has not legislated correctly here. They have a lot of things short of student loan forgiveness they could do, like loosening regulations, like changing who can and can't do things, like putting some jawboning pressure on these higher education places to do things like let students work more and things like that. There's a lot of intermediate steps between total student loan forgiveness and re-regulating some of how this system works. And almost all of that falls under the purview of Congress and legislation if they'd be willing to actually do it. And yet they don't. I put a lot of my blame on Congress here. Oh, and I, I think sometimes we, I, I think the politicians react a little bit too late. Um, I, I think a great example of this was right when the Biden administration, there's, they were going to propose student loan forgiveness. Now, the exact details were not known last year, but they were going to propose it. And Republicans come out with a bill, the Real Reforms Act. One provision in that bill would have limited executive action so that the Biden administration or the Secretary of Education couldn't just forgive student loans at a snap of a finger. But that that legislation came a little bit too late. And again, it wasn't going to get passed at the time. So I, I thought that, you know, we need more proactive policies, not reactive ones. Yeah, it's a good point. You also mentioned in your piece here, and I think this is important. Now, you, you do some educational research stuff, so you kind of follow these trends and keep up with them. There's a definitive trend line of young people getting more and more skeptical about higher education in the traditional sense, as far as going to a four-year college and then grad school or career or whatever. This is adding to it, though. I don't know that if we have data to it, but anytime you have confusion, you have public debate on something like student loans, that's going to naturally turn people off to them or at least make them second guess doing that path. Do you see that in the work you're doing that some of this debate, whether you're for or against the student loan forgiveness, just the fact that it's such a hot button issue, that's going to start affecting how students view it, is it not? It is. I, uh, for the National Association of Scholars, I researched this topic on student debt, on college finances, and I spoke to families and students from across the country. And one of the primary reasons they attend college is not necessarily because they want more knowledge. They feel like they have to go in order to get a good job. So I would say the college degree is really seen as an insurance policy. It's just, it, it's out of risk aversion. And there's an interesting point you brought up earlier, the way we uh, disperse these public funds. I think we, we kind of give out student loans without much thought. It's seen from an access point of view instead of, well, what? It, how, how do we use these funds in the most efficient way? And something that I propose is that we should, not only should we roll back federal student aid, but when we do, we should restrict who the loans go to. We should consider whether the student is academically prepared, they can handle the coursework so that we don't see any dropouts. We see a commitment to education and finishing those degrees. And also, if those students are entering programs where they would get a good return on investment. So that way, our public funds were put to good use. Uh, I, I don't know why we don't do this. This 
I noticed this with a lot of lending systems, uh, whether it's a bank or some other private lender, they will consider somebody's financial history. They will look at credit scores. They will see if you have the ability to even repay your loans. And this is this is to ensure that all parties are protected, especially the, the person who will be taking out loans. We, we want to make sure that they're not in drowning amounts of debt where they're, it's just going to be difficult to repay. And that's also unfair to the lender. And so I think we should bring those concepts into uh, federal student lending. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Folks, you've heard of Ethan Brown on the Herd Tell Show a couple of different times, but if you're interested in learning about how to discuss things like climate change without all the politics and doom and gloom, head over to his podcast, The Sweaty Penguin. Sweaty Penguin is a late-night comedy-style climate podcast working to add nuance, critical thinking, humor, and hope to the climate conversation. they got over 100 episodes already, breaking down weekly news stories and specific topics from the vanilla to the ADHD to the international accountability to orangutan. Yes, I know, it's a comedy thing, so just go with it. But each time, exploring different ways we can make progress on these issues while still helping the economy, health, security, and everything else we care about. Feel overwhelmed, exhausted, or excluded by today's climate change discourse? This is the podcast for you. Find The Sweaty Penguin wherever you get your podcasts or at www.thesweatypenguin.com. Arnold joining us. Well, we know why it is because the way the system is set up now is it is uh, to a large extent predatory and it's also incestuous because once these students get into the system, that's guaranteed money for the higher education folks and it's guaranteed money through the financial institutions. People don't want to screw with guaranteed money and that's why you can't do things like that would make a lot of sense like letting people with massive amounts of debt they have no chance repaying discharge it in a bankruptcy proceeding which everybody else in america would get an opportunity to do and they don't have chances to do other things and that's part of the problem of the system here too is you've made almost these student loan folks an exclusive group that in reality doesn't have the rights of any other lender when you get right down to it right and I think when we talk about uh, student lending policy and forgiveness and bankruptcy, you know, I, I would like to have a system where we can both offer mercy, but we also need restraint. I think our current system right now offers a lot of mercy. We're giving a lot of forgiveness, but then there's no accountability both to the government and to our higher education institutions. 
And I think we could have a more forgiving system, not forgiveness, but a forgiving system where if you are actually struggling to repay your loans, we can offer more deferments or we can allow students or borrowers to uh, declare bankruptcy. I would love to see that, but at the same time, we need to make sure that there is restraint. And that's why it's so important that uh, we are a bit more discerning in how we disperse these federal funds. Yeah, me too, Arnold, joining us. Let's talk on the practical level now, though. Um, I agree that there needs to be some mercy here. I would be more open to a wide-ranging forgiveness plan if it was coupled with reform. And then you say, yeah. okay, we're reforming the system, so we're going to have to forgive X amount of debts because we're resetting the system. We're just going to have to take the hit. That's a logical argument that I think would be fair to a lot of people, but you're not getting that right now. The other side of this, and this is where I fault our conservative friends and their side of the argument a lot is, is they veer way too much towards just, well, not everybody needs to go to college. And yes, that's true. 60% of folks do not have a college. The problem is they stop there and they don't do the next step of, well, what's your plan for vocational schools? What's your plan for vocational training in the high schools, which has been gutted over the last 50 years and had a deleterious effect on society, in my opinion. What's your argument for community colleges? What's your arguments and plans and proposals for programs that are the alternatives to the same kind of success that you used to get out of the college degree? Technology has changed. Yes, you can make multiple pathways, but they're not doing a good job of saying, here's how you do those plans. They're stopping short of that. And I think that's a major problem that they need to be articulating better. I 100% agree with you on that. And a lot of these issues with higher education, there's also a K through 12 component here, having much stronger K through 12 curriculums. Uh, I, I think we have a, a culture where we're more interested in moving one grade up and it's, it's always looking towards a career rather than developing skills. I think if we had a culture of developing skills, then it doesn't really matter what career goals you have or what dream you might have, those skills are always transferable. Um, I was actually very lucky to grow up in upstate New York and my high school had a sort of dual trades program. So for students who wanted to go, let's say into, like they wanted to become a mechanic or they wanted to become a hairdresser, um, they would, this was starting maybe junior, senior year of high school. They would take the core classes, like let's say math, English, and then for the other half of the day, they would go to those special specialized training classes. And that way, when they graduated high school, they could immediately enter the workforce. I don't know if this is a program that's in other states, but that was something that really seemed to work. It, I, I don't know, it seems to be something that should be offered in a lot of states. Uh, but I think we, again, I think we need stronger K through 12 education. Um, and when, when we take it to higher education, I, I think we could make some other reforms, you know, maybe shorten the length of time people are pursuing their degrees. I'm not sure if four years is really necessary for a lot of programs. So it, it's making those kinds of reforms and really keeping the uh, bigger vision of what we're trying to go after. We want fiscal responsibility here. We also want to reward talent and merit. And we also don't want needless credentialism, but that, that doesn't mean we don't support people going to college. Again, I think we wanna 
we, we want to meet people where they are and what their goals are. And for some that will be higher education and for some that won't be. Me too, Arnold, joining us. I think some, one of the underlying problems here, too, is how we discuss this. You just talked about it. Um, when you turn K-12 through into a pipeline to college, that's a problem because mm-hmm. now you've lost the point of both K-12 through and college. You know, you've really hurt yourself on both ends of it. We don't really know how to talk about that yet. When you talk about something like the student loan issue, um, the messaging of forgiveness plays really well of this is unfair. Let's fix that. That messaging is a strong messaging and you need to have a counter message to say, yes, it's unfair, but we need to do this instead. How do we talk about this issue better? Because we can get into the policy and the minutiae and we can talk about the FAIR Act and we can talk about student loans and how complicated the numbers are and the billions of dollars this involves. Folks' eyes just roll in the back of their head. They just don't have the bandwidth or patience for that, right? So how do we actually talk about this situation and this very real problem that's going to keep compounding as we go along because more people are going into the system, right? How do we talk about it in a more effective way to everybody to get everybody discussing it? Well, we first need to understand why so many people are going to college in the first place. We act as if it's a choice everybody makes, but when a lot of jobs are requiring degrees, even for the jobs where you don't really need a college education, a lot of students are going to go for that reason. Um, and so, and one thing that frustrates me is when people say, well, why don't they just go and repay their loans? It's that simple and we can stop the conversation there. And while I agree that if you take out a loan, you have to pay it back, that I 100% agree with, we shouldn't just stop the conversation there. And again, going back to the ideals that the GOP could actually um, promote as a cohesive higher education vision that we support merit, we support talent. We also support offering alternative options for people who, where college is not really an option or it won't be the best use of their time. And we, can, and we also don't want endless credentialism. I think if we focus around these values, I think that's something that would make sense to a lot of people. It seems common sense and it would be fiscally responsible. And that way, whatever funds we do, whatever public funds we are using, it, we have a guarantee that it is going to students who would make the best use of it. Yeah, me too, Arnold, joining us. Just to put a kind of a cap on this conversation, though, I think some folks are voting with your feet. We already talked about the the changing perceptions of young people about how they view college. Do you see that in the data that you research and the folks you talk about? And you're closer to that cohort than I am. Not that I'm old, but I'm getting there. I've seen it in my own children. One of my children who's now a college student graduated high school with basically an associate's degree already done because they did the dual track program. That takes years off their college. I think we're going to see more piecemeal stuff where folks go, well, I can do a little bit of this. We just put a whole generation through online school and high school. They're going to go, well, I did most of my high school online during COVID. Why can't I do that for college? Because it's much, much cheaper and much more flexible. And then I can work and whatever. I think we're going to start seeing a change in the actual students before we see a change in the system. 
Is that what we should be paying attention to now, how the students are reacting? Because it seems like the system's pretty calculated and not going to really change anytime soon. Well, we should be paying attention to the current generation and the future ones. Uh, at the same time, I would say that it is it is on the lawmakers to to have some foresight. It shouldn't be that people need to react and that's how policy changes occur. It should be that the lawmakers are are having some foresight here and they are figuring out what they're, they're anticipating the problem so that people don't have to react. Yep. Need to Arnold love discussing this because again, this is one of those issues where there's a whole lot of different things crossing streams all at once. Let folks know where they can follow you, keep up with you, what you got going on until we get you back on her tell again. Sure. You can follow me at N E E T U underscore Arnold on Twitter. Yep. And unlike her homing situation, her Twitter handle will not change. Neetu Arnold, thank you so much for the time today. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, ma'am. All the music on her tell is provided under a creative content license from MonsterCat.com. When everyone is on the same page, getting things done at work is easy. No matter what you do or what industry you're in, how you communicate is key. Everything you type is equally important to collaboration, and Grammarly can help. Think of it as your AI writing partner, empowering you to communicate effectively and efficiently so you can make a bigger impact in the workplace. 96% of Grammarly users say it helps them craft more impactful writing. And as the gold standard of responsible AI, Grammarly is your secure AI writing partner that allows your team to make their point and move faster. By understanding your writing and context, Grammarly provides relevant, personalized suggestions. And with tone suggestions, you can navigate even the most difficult work conversations. You can also save time from spending hours editing drafts to just seconds with one click. Sign up and download Grammarly for free at Grammarly.com slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said, done. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Religion is at the intersection of our 21st century life, even if we don't express a faith. At a time when it seems that religion isn't as prevalent as it once was, it still leaves its mark everywhere. As a pastor, I know that religion isn't something I just do on a Sunday, but it's found in every nook and cranny of my life. Sexuality, politics, social media, the economy, war, nationalism, all have some kind of religious angle to them. And as a communicator, I want to find the stories that can help people understand this part of our society that is so important to so many. Hi, I'm Dennis Sanders, and I'm the host of Church and Maine. Church in Maine is a podcast about the journey of faith and where it intersects with modern life. I look at faith with a journalist's eye, asking the who, where, what, why, and how religion affects some of the major issues of the day. Join me as we journey together. 
You can listen to Church in Maine podcasts at the website churchinmaine.org or on your favorite podcast app. I look forward to seeing you.